Good morning. And this is our prayer. I've listed it in your notes, and I'd like you to uh, do more than just be a spectator this morning and see it up on the screen, because it's back to school time. Some schools started just this week. Some will start next week. I understand there's uh, Jamestown. It hasn't started yet. We started eight days ago, two weeks ago. But we want to pray for our children, regardless of whether it's, and I'm going to share a little bit with you today about what's happening in your school, our school here, as well as uh, what's happening in education as a whole, but I've got a word to bring. But I want you to say this with me, because you know our kids are really, really precious, and they're really important to us. So let's say this together. Dear God, as school begins, we humbly ask you, protect our children, give them courage to live out their faith. Give them strength to make right choices. Give them wisdom to know your will. Guide their steps. Guard their hearts. Let them know your presence. This is our prayer. If you're in agreement with that, say amen. 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 I think you would agree. And uh, I've, I've since learned now, now that we're grandparents, and uh, my first grandchild will turn three here next Sunday, how they really steal your heart. You thought our kids were great. I love Bill Cosby's comment, if I knew grandkids were this much fun, I would have had them first. <laughs> and I understand that now. But frankly, our kids are really special to us. They hold a special spark in each one of our hearts. I think it really goes back to even at a time when Jesus himself literally said when they were bringing the kids in to have Jesus place his hands on them in Matthew 19, and he said, let the little children come to me. And I like the way it's phrased in the NIV. He says, for, uh, let them come to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Kind of a lesson he's given us in the midst of his conversation there, such as these. But wouldn't you also agree that our society now that we live in is getting darker? and darker. And it's getting tougher and tougher. It's almost as if the frog in the kettle routine. Slowly, slowly it's changing. And we need to pray over our kids, whether it be in a Christian school or whether it be in public school. Either way, we need to pray over our kids and ask God's blessing. Our culture has lost what I think is called the wonder of who God really is. And that's what's really changed. Let me take you back for just a second. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm not going to read all 28 verses of that, but I do want to paraphrase a couple of them. The first two verses in there, he writes, These are the commands, the decrees, and the laws that your Lord, to love your Lord your God directed to me to teach you to observe in the land that you're about to cross in the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and the children after them may fear the Lord our, uh, your God as long as you live by keeping all the decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy a long life. And who doesn't want that? But he goes on a couple of verses later and he says something that now today for the Jewish children growing up is called the Shema, which they say every single day of their lives. And it's something that declares for all of us. And it's verse five. It says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down. And the last verse of chapter 6, and it's worth noting, and it's worth you spending some time to go back and read of Deuteronomy, and that was, he says this, the blessing of God is on them 
as long as you remain faithful and obedient. It's no secret that we serve in a day and time right now that our culture has lost the wonder of who God is. It's, but at the midst of all that, God always seems to keep a remnant along with that. Did you know that we just celebrated over 54 years, and I say celebrated in a kind of a nasty sense, 54 years ago, they were successful in taking the Bible out of public schools. It was on June 25th, 1962. I can remember it because I finished second grade that year. And I can remember growing up in a public school setting that way. That means that we've had over two and a half generations approximately that have grown up in a public school system that has never known what it's like to have prayer in the Bible in your schools. And it's having an impact on our society today. And I'm not anti that. I think it's awesome. And I love it when I see so many of our public educators in the congregation, we have a like-mindedness. And I pray for them often, and we do here at the school. But let me get something straight that comes out of Deuteronomy 6 that I think we've lost the wonder in what happens here just before I get into a main text that I want to share a couple of thoughts with you about our school as well. And that is the fear of the Lord. I'm often asked, I was emailed not long ago by one of our parents saying, I don't understand this fear of the Lord thing. The word fear to me sounds very scary. It sounds very frightening. It sounds paralyzing. And I don't understand, how are we supposed to love God but yet be so afraid of him? And I think it's because we have a tendency to look at things from our English interpretation that's come down the line. That word fear, if you interpret it truly in its original text in the Hebrew or the Greek, you'll find out that there are many shades of fear, just like the word love. There are many shades of love. And to try to understand... But every time scripture refers to the love of God, it's not referring to a terrifying or paralyzing fear. The word itself is yar, in case you want to make notes. Yar means to fear, to respect, or to have reverence for. The Hebrew noun changes it just a little bit to yara, which means that the fear of God is acknowledging God's good intentions by having a great respect for him. There's a pledge that we have, I'm often asked why, but we do a pledge to the Bible in the school, and in that is included in the verse, Psalm 119, verse 11, and it says, I will hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God. That's the kind of fear we're referring to. Proverbs, Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter one, he said, the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And then just a couple of chapters later in chapter nine, he says, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the fear of God that they were referring to that should be carried on from generation to generation for his obedience really meant a reverence, an awe, an understanding of that. Listen to what the Greek does. It takes it a little bit different. The word there is phobos, and that word means not a mere fear of his power and righteous retribution. I don't know about you, but I kind of went through a number of churches growing up when I was in high school, and I got saved when I was 14, and we attended a very small conservative-type church. And it felt like all they kept telling me was God's standing up there with a big stick and he was ready for me to mess up so he could just nail me. They never said that directly, but boy, that's how I felt. They never taught me about the love and the fear of God that really comes through the right way. But this particular word, phobos, really means it's a wholesome dread of displeasing him. Now, let me give you a little bit clearer example. See, a healthy fear of God includes the fear of the consequences of disobedience. That's the wonder that we've lost in part of our educational system and in part of raising kids. I've watched over the years, I've served in this for quite a while, and I've seen a big change in all the years that I've been involved with education. 
But the reverence of God helps us to take him and his beneficial laws seriously. Where is that awe anymore of coming in and saying, when God said it, that settles it. Whether I believe it or not, that's the way it works. There are many benefits that work within that. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with the joy of your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. If we understand, truly, what they were saying in Deuteronomy originally that gets passed on to us, and then Jesus made reference to many times in some of his teachings that go into our educational system as a whole, then we'll understand that the blessings of God aren't just for here, they're also for what happens in eternal life. Well, we prayed that prayer. We want God's protection for our children and the courage to live out their faith. But do you know where it begins? It begins in the home. It begins in the home, and that's part of why I want to share with you this morning. I don't know about you, but my parents divorced at an early age, but I still had rules. And we had some of those. I spent the winter with my mother and the summers with my father. And the one thing I learned from my father, because he was a military man, was in the, in the Air Force for 24 years and was a first sergeant. I learned real quick by my stepbrother, who was my dad's second wife. He challenged everything. And there were times that you don't challenge my dad. That I, he found himself at the dinner table on the floor next to it, simply because of a smart comment that was made. And I learned rather quickly, the fear of the rules in the house are, I was afraid of the retribution. And that's the wrong kind of fear in that respect, but that's where it starts. It starts in the home. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that what happens is there are rules that we were given, and if a father really cares, he'll discipline his children because he cares for them. But eventually they grow up and they learn to, to do that on their own. And the rules that we had when we were kids, that we knew that these were the boundaries, that we later continued to follow those because of love, because of respect for our parents. We heard it said so well, I thought, last week when Nicole talked about how important it was as she was trying to get her girls to obey on the first command, and that she felt like the Lord spoke to her very strongly and succinctly. Why do you think I want them to learn to obey on the first command? So that when they eventually get older and grow up, they learn that when God speaks the first time, we don't st stand there and say, but why? But why? Why do I have to do this? It's learning that. So we, we learned it at home. But we live in a world, this is what's really interesting, we live in a world right now, the family unit is being torn apart, is it not? I mean, the sanctity of marriage has been challenged. What is a family unit anymore? We're finding all the time it's coming down the pike, and I'm telling you, it's getting harder and harder to be able to understand and to motivate and to keep these, these values intact. But God always keeps a remnant. Those who are willing to stand up for and do what they need to. So why do you think it is we care for our kids so much? Why do you think we want them to obey? Because we know what's best for them. But we must show them by example, which leads me then to my text this morning, and I've listed it on your outline as well. Philippians 2, and Paul talks about it very, very clearly when he's so, so poignantly coming across, and he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And uh, it, it's interesting, he says, for God then who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, I want to expound that just a little bit for you, and I'm going to do it 
rather succinctly because I want to save time at the end to be able to share with you some statistics as to where we're at. That word, therefore, he says that in the very beginning because he's speaking to us as a family. We're here, family. We've been talking about that. We're a family of believers that are here. It's a community. And in the midst of that community, there are times that we have some of those family meetings. And so what Paul is saying to the Philippians at that point is he says, therefore, therefore, look at the first 11 verses of chapter 2. He's saying, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and what you do is you understand, make it complete. God created us all so unique and different. Every one of us. In fact, I love it. Joyce Landorf always says that there's always somebody in the world that just, just, just rubs you the wrong way, no matter what. There's always somebody that no matter what they do, they walk in the room, they just irritate the snot out of you. And I don't know why God made these four different personalities and we're kind of a blending. And then he says, now go play nice. And he says, and, and, and you figure it out. You hate that part, don't you? But that's what he's saying. So what Paul says is, therefore, I've just demonstrated for you. You play nice and here's how you do it. You humble yourself because Jesus did, so you need to. He's the example. Now you be the example. Now, therefore, he's speaking to us. If you have any thoughts, you have had rules up to now. Paul's nurtured them. He's been with them. But what he's saying to them is, therefore, I'm about to leave you. You've always obeyed when I was there, and now I'm away. I saw you when you were an infant, when, you were, when I carried you into church, into that car seat. I saw you when you started walking, take, take your first steps. I saw you when you went through, you know, that toddlerhood. Oh, toddlerhood. Isn't that awesome? Two years. You know why they call it the, the terrible twos? It's not because when you turn two, you start acting up. It takes two years to get that stuff out of your system. And uh, that's why they call it the terrible twos. To go through that. But Paul's saying, I was with you when you went through that. I was, went through, I was with you when you went through your childhood. And then when you reach that happy spot of teenage years and adolescence. Oh, yeah, that's another fun one, isn't it? And so what he says is, but now you're in adulthood. Therefore, now it's time for you to learn to go solo. You know what to do. As you have always obeyed. I love this. This one always gets me. When somebody comes up and pays you a compliment, you wait for the, yeah, but. You know, you've really, really done this really well. But let me tell you something. And, and that's really what he's doing here. So he's, he's complimenting them, and it's always nice to hear that, but then he gives a directive. But as with every progress and growing, there comes a point in time when you've been mentored by a leader, by a teacher, by a parent, by a shepherd, and now they're out of the picture. And you're wondering, can I do this? But part of the process in us growing is that we have to do it on our own. Therefore, as you've always obeyed, work out. Now think about that word, work out. This one's tough. It sounds tough discipline, doesn't it? Think back to your third grade year, maybe your fourth, when you had to do things like long division or multiply three numbers times three numbers. And what did the teacher always tell you? Show your work. Why? What if I just get the answer? Who cares? Some kids are smart enough that just can see it and know the answer. Doesn't work that way. I also remember when I was in school, it was a few years back, okay, I was planning to be an engineer, and I remember taking calculus, and I remember we had to work out all those formulas by hand, and it seemed like the following years when they came out with those really nice Texas instruments that you basically hit the button, and it does the sine, the cosine, the tangent, and everything else that goes with it. I hated that. We had to do them by hand, but why do we have to show our work? There's a reason for that, and that's exactly what Paul's referring to here. It's because it's a progressive work. 
The teacher wants to see your work. Why? Because if you didn't get the answer, they want to find out where you were off. I know. I taught fourth grade for a couple of years, and I can remember it way back then that I would do the same thing with my students. They would come to the board, and I'd put something over there, and they had to walk it through. And if they didn't get the right answer, I would say, nah, that's not it. And they would try to figure it out. I said, now work it backwards, go back up, and find out where you were off. Paul's saying the same thing to us. The same thing to all of us. Work it to completion. Keep your work going. But what is it we're working out? Now, this is where it gets a little tricky, because he says, I want you to continue to work out your salvation. Now, we know what salvation is. It's basically a deliverance from the sin and the consequences that go with that. But this is where it gets off a little bit. And this is where sometimes people say it's important for us that what Paul was saying is that we were to work for our salvation. You can't. You cannot work. There is no such thing as a works gospel. It, it can't work that way. Because frankly, Jesus paid the price. He is the one that gave us our salvation. So why does he tell us to continue to work it out? You've probably heard me say before, why is it we just don't get people saved and bam, we kill them. Just send them to heaven straight. What happens in the in-between? This is what happens in the in-between. That's why I said it that way. Is that frankly, we're to work out our salvation. In other words, what he has worked in us, we need to work out. So it's, it's the means, it's the process that we're going through, not just the end result. And what happens is, and I've watched people that have been within church for a long, long time, and even students in school, to where they've done it the wrong way for so long, and when you question them on it, they always come back with the answer, but that's the way I've always done it. That's what I was told. What if you were told wrong? Uh-oh, there's a thought. You mean I have to go back and relearn? Maybe. That's what Paul's saying here. He wants us to continue to work, excuse me, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And now, see, that's where it gets a little confusing. The fear, the reverence, awe, and understanding the tremblings on our part. So what we should do is he says, it's really good to continue to work it out. That prayer now, we've continued. And we pray for God's strength to make right choices and to have the wisdom to know his will. Now, this is where it gets a little bit more personal. And that is every year, we have gone with a theme verse at our school here. And I've sat down, and how do you choose one verse out of the whole Bible? It's like saying the rest of them aren't good, but they're all good. And so we've really asked God to give us some direction that we could, with the kids from kindergarten to 12th grade, and you talk about a challenge on that, coming up with a theme verse that works for everybody. Um, we, we, we don't want to make it so simplistic that, you know, the seniors and the high school feel like it's, you know, really beneath them, but we don't want to make it so complicated, kindergarten and Mrs. Beveridge's class can't handle that. So we've prayed about it every year. And every year, it seems like God's given us one that's just clicked, and we've watched it. And this year, it's Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in us, both to will and to act according to his good purpose. And that's pretty exciting. So we've been spending a lot of time doing that. Well, let me tell you what also happened is that last summer, as I was praying for our school and asking God to not only help us get all the right people in the right seats, get the students here, get everything ready, the curriculum ordered, all that kind of stuff, facility set up, I felt like the Lord said, you can pray for my blessing on the school or you can pray for my presence. I thought, wow, what's the difference? And I meditated that on a little bit. And so last year, we actually asked God's presence in this place as opposed to his blessing. And uh, I won't expound on that. I think I said that in an earlier message. But this year, as I was praying about it, I felt like the Lord said, I want to take you a step further. It's not just my presence. In fact, sometimes when Jesus shows up, it gets real messy. And there are problems to deal with. Somebody once told me schools would be perfect if it wasn't for the kids. Yeah, probably true. But you know, Proverbs 14.4 says an empty stable stays clean. But from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. 
And so what happens is we're in the business of being messy. And we're in the business of making connections with kids and watching them grow and develop wherever they're at. And that's what makes it kind of exciting. So God is at work in us. God's doing the work. So relax. No, you can't really relax because he said you've got to work it out. But you've got to understand that God gives us a desire inside and then the ability to carry out what he's already placed within us. He's just waiting for us to ask. It's part of the first installments of his grace, excuse me, his grace in our lives. And that's what accomplishes his divine purpose for each of us. Our will does nothing then without grace, but grace is inactive without our will. Man is in a different sense, totally active and totally passive at the same time. What do I mean by that? God's producing all, but we're acting all. What is produced is our acts. What he produces is our acts. It's not that God does some and then we do some. God does all and we do all. God is only the proper author and we are the proper actors. Thus, the same things in scripture are represented as from God, as from us. God makes a new heart in us and then we're commanded to make a new heart. But how do we do that? We don't merely do it just because we focus in on the means. You've got to have the effect. You've got to have what we do with it. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31 says, rid yourselves of all offenses that you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. God gives us a new heart, but we're told also that we need a new heart. That must mean that there's something that we've got to do in this process, and there is. Ezekiel goes on in chapter 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So who works? God works. God works in each one of us. You ever done something, worked hard at a task only to find out later it meant absolutely nothing? Didn't that make you feel horrible? Everybody wants to do something to know that it made a difference. That's the way God wired us. But what God said is, I'm at work and I want to work through you. And I want to give you the fulfillment of what you have done that was something that I placed within there. There is a great feeling of accomplishment when we, when we complete a task. But I've heard many people say, we see it today and many of these pro athletes, they act like they're God's gift to the earth. And they got to remember who gave them the talent in the first place. They got to put it back where it belongs. Second Corinthians, Paul says this, such confidence we have through Christ before, before God not that we are competent to ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. So understand that. It's God that's working in us, but then he's telling us, you don't just get to sit back and do nothing. You've got to do your part. So what does that mean? It means that he gives us the will, the power, and the ability to carry it out to completion. That's what this is all about. God said to Jeremiah one time, he said, you know what? Israel blew it. There's going to come a day, Jeremiah, when I will no longer write my law on the tablets of stone, but I'm going to write it on the hearts of men. And that's what it is. So how do I know what God's will is? How do I know that I'm following God's will? It's real simple, actually. We make it complicated, but it really is simple. God reveals it already in your heart. Well, does that mean that the things that I desire come from me are God's will? No, it doesn't work that way. If you're faithful to be obedient to what Deuteronomy said initially, keeping his commands, following his decrees, 
obeying what he said to do, then you'll find out that the desires within you become God's desires, and he places those. Yeah, but if I totally sell out to God, then he's probably going to make me go to Africa or something. Not if you don't want to go to Africa or something. God begins to place things within you, and sometimes they're strange things. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart, Psalm 37.4 says. Let me give you a great example. When I was in college, I, I went to college in Costa Mesa, California. And in that particular area, there was a nice little pastor by the name of Chuck Smith who started Calvary Chapel and was teaching on Sunday nights. And we would go there and hear. And I remember him telling a story that applied to this, this very thing about how you know God's will. He was invited to speak at a church up in Ventura. Ventura is about an hour and a half away from Costa Mesa. Basically, it's wall-to-wall city, Orange County, L.A., and then a little bit of outside from that. And he is a very big, he's since recently passed away, but he was a very big beach person, water person. And if you've ever driven in California up Pacific Coast Highway, it's right along the coast all the way up. And it's absolutely spectacular. It was a beautiful day. Chuck took his convertible, put the top down, and he decided rather than going up the freeway, the 101 straight to Ventura, he would take Sunset Boulevard over to the coast. Not sure why, but just kind of felt like it was a good day. When he got to the, the coast, right there at the corner, Pacific Coast Highway and Sunset Boulevard, and was about to turn, he noticed a couple that was hitchhiking. And in the midst of hitchhiking, he doesn't normally pitch up, pick up hitchhikers at that time, but he felt a little guilty, sitting in a convertible, enjoying the nice day, and here's this couple needing a ride. So he picks them up, asked them where they were going. They were heading up to Ventura. As he had a conversation with them, he turned it around, shared the Lord with them, and they accepted Jesus. So when they got to Ventura, he pulled over, led them to Christ, told them he was speaking at the church the next day, and if they wanted to come, they could come and learn more about him, and they would help them get plugged in. He also found out that the couple was in Los Angeles. They were from Montana. The couple was there because he was a farmer, and he was looking for work. Now, what was interesting is they were in Los Angeles. There are no farms in Los Angeles. <laughs> but this couple was there. Well, Chuck didn't think anything of it, but the next night he spoke at that particular church, and sure enough, that couple came came forward and made a public declaration, and Mr. Jenkins, one of the uh, head ushers came over, or the deacons or whatever it was, came over to pray with them. Well, Chuck knew the people in that church and knew Mr. Jenkins and knew that he was the foreman at a ranch outside of Santa Barbara and just so happened to give a job to this young couple who the job also included housing and everything that went with it. And Chuck thought to himself in the midst that when he saw that, saw the connection, you know what? God directed my steps in the fact that I could have gone one direction, but God told me to go another. And though I felt a little guilty at one point, though I responded, that's part of how we know it's God's will. It's the little things. God's not going to suddenly send you, you know, a FedEx that has the, the information as to what you're supposed to do. It's the little things. It's when we follow him. So God is at work in our lives doing that. It happens to you and I every single day. God is the one who does the work and he gives us the will and then the ability to carry it out. And so it's initiated by God, and we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But it's God who's actually doing the work. It is God who has put the yearning in your heart. It is God that has given you the desire. And now it is God that will work out the ways by which it might be fulfilled. For he works in you, both to will and then to do his good pleasure. But here's the really cool part. Heard it said recently, and it happens all the time, Psalm 139 before you were formed, I knew you. God has plans for every single one of us. But you know what's really kind of cool about that whole thing? Is that God says, before one day came to be, I saw your whole life. 
It was like it came to be. It's, it's a sense of destiny. It's our, it's our spiritual birthright. God has ordained our days. He's ordained our footsteps, and he's prepared good works for us even before we were conceived. Now, I have an app on my phone. I'm kind of a nut with numbers, as you know. And so I'm going to tell you, today I have been alive 21,890 days. Just about 25 days short of 60 years. Can you believe that? It just, I mean, it just, just happens. But before one of those came to be, God said, I knew that on this day you would be here sharing this message, doing this work. Did you know that? But when I was a young, snotty-nosed kid growing up in a divorced home wondering what my purpose was, feeling like I had been abandoned and life wasn't fair, God had other plans. And God does that for each one of us. I've been reading a couple of authors recently, and Mark Batterson's one, and I had to share this with you. He says it this way, the irony of destiny is that it's rarely discerned at the time. Sometimes it's not even revealed until after we die. David may have reigned over a kingdom of millions, but his Psalms have inspired billions. That's David's longest legacy, whether he knew it or not at the time, and I'm guessing not. Your greatest influence might be posthumous, it's one more way that God gets the last laugh and he gets the glory. Your greatest influence might be your children or church or the charitable trusts that outlive you. For the record, this is one reason, Mark says, I write. Books are time capsules. I write because I want my great-great-grandchildren to know what I lived for and what I was willing to die for. And if others want to read my books while I'm living, all the better. I write for the third and fourth generation after me. Just because something isn't a part of your, plan, your life plan right now doesn't mean it's not part of your destiny. Without me even knowing it, God's been fulfilling his call on my life. My job is to obey God with a keyboard and a pulpit. God takes it from there, and the same is true for you. God is working his plan, whether you know it or not, and he will get all the glory. It's whether or not all we get a choice of is to whether we acknowledge it. That's what I love about this. God is working his good pleasing and perfect plan in your life in a thousand different ways that you're not even aware of. Everything in your past is preparation for something in your future. God wastes nothing. Even when you have a setback, God's already prepared your comeback. The God who works all things together for good will leverage every experience, every skill, every mistake, and every bit of knowledge that you have acquired. Why? Because your destiny predates you. Did you know that? God has a plan. It, we're not going to stand before God and he's going to say, well done, good and intended servant. It's faithful, faithful. And what is that? And what's required of me is not the same. It's required of you. And so in this verse, he says, for it is God who works in us, both to will and then to act. And the key for the whole thing is his good purpose. Oh, now, Look at this. Ephesians 1 says, He predestined for us adoption and sonship to Jesus Christ in accordance with the measure and his pleasure and will. He made known to us the mystery. I love that part. Of his will according to his good pleasure, for he has purposed in Christ. So what exactly is good? How would you define good? This is what John Bevere says is going to be the falling away in the last days, is that there are going to be many people that we talk about that are good. In his book, Good or God, I, I challenge you to read that. It, it, it took me a year to get through the book because it's so powerful. But in the midst of that, he said, how do we really define what is good? 
We have somebody, I mean, I've done many, many funerals, and you sit around, you talk to the family, and they come back, and they say, oh, he was really good. Well, tell me something else about him. Well, I, there's not much to say, but he was good. We're never as good as our eulogy at our funeral. Did you know that? Because nobody wants to talk about the bad things. And I understand that. There's a reason for that. But it's carried over into everything else that we do in life. When, when you hear somebody, oh, tell me about so-and-so. Oh, they're a good person. And we just vulnerably accept that and say, oh, well, because you say they're good, I'll, 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 I'll treat that they're good. But truth is, we've all failed. We've all had shortcomings. And that's carried over into society. Look at every movie that's out, every show that's out, everything that's out there. They always emphasize the good. And those reality TV shows, it's after the show that sometimes you get to see the behind the scenes, the mess ups, the things that they did. But they're showing the good part. Why? Because you won't watch it if it doesn't end that way. If you notice, the bad guy never wins. Why? Because it won't sell movies. And so what happens is it's slowly creeping into the church that we don't remember anymore because Deuteronomy says, don't ever forget God. And remember, God is at work. God, that's not just for the Jews. That's not just for the Old Testament. That's for us today. That's for us today, right now. We are to continue the wonder and the awe of who God is in every facet of our lives. Whether it be working in Christian education or working in secular, it doesn't matter. The awe of who God is. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, even a rich young ruler came up to Jesus. A young man who was an honest man, who was morally pure, he'd never committed adultery, never murdered, lied, stolen, cheated, never had a bad business deal, always respected by his parents, was a model citizen, and he comes up to Jesus and he said, what do I have to do? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't even answer his question. Jesus comes back and says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Are you saying Jesus wasn't good? No, Jesus was good. But what Jesus was questioning, I think, was man's idea of what we think is good. So I want to challenge you with that in the fact that do we know what's good? That prayer that we prayed at the beginning for our kids, give them strength, make right choices, give them wisdom to know your will, guide their steps, guard their hearts, let them know your presence. That prayer needs to be prayed for us as well. God Give us your wisdom. Help us make right choices. Help us to know your will. Guide our steps. Guard our hearts. Let us know your presence. Because if we don't, we're not building strong families. And if we don't do it together, then our kids are not going to follow that. 53 years now, we've not had an absolute standard in our educational system. And I hear it from educators every day. Well, what's so bad with our system? I'll tell you what's bad. It's humanistic. It's not on an absolute. The Bible's the only absolute. And that has never changed, folks. And our society's getting really tough. It's getting really, really hard. And you need to pray for us as educators, both in the public realm and in the private realm. So the net result of all this is that we do his purpose and it's for his pleasure. And what's really cool is that when we do it, what he's been doing through us, we get excited about it, and that's why we can say, I love to do your will, O Lord, because there is nothing, nothing more fulfilling than knowing that you're smack in the middle of where God is and God's will is. Even if there's a storm raging, it doesn't matter. He's present, and he's there. Well, I told you I wanted to share just a few thoughts, and I did share, I did condense it down, so don't get too excited, okay? 
I want you to know, I just started my 18th year here at the school. I was asked to, thank you. I am, I'm absolutely honored. I think it's really cool that Pastor Blattner's back there, and I followed him, who he was here at the first part of this school after it got started in 1993. They started the school 24 years ago with the idea of a preschool and kindergarten. And Dick Fisher, who was the board member at the time, felt so strongly that God wanted us to start a school as they were building the educational wing, and we did that. I was contacted. Pastor Blattner said he would be here for five years, and I think he was five years to the day. <laughs> And so when Pastor Jack called me, God had been doing some things in my life as well and changed some things in my heart. I was at a school I thought I would never, ever leave on the West Coast. And, uh, but Pastor Jack called me and said, hey, would you consider coming? We've got a school. I need somebody that's a pastor. I need somebody to help with the business affairs. And you're going to hear a little bit how my portfolio has changed and how I'm very excited about what God's doing. But for the last 17 years, I've been a part of that school. School's 24 years old. I've been at this school two-thirds of its life. And when I came in, I basically said, God, what do you want to do here? Because whatever you started, I just want to carry on to completion. And so I've been a part of that to be able to watch. Now, as best I can figure, and because we didn't do everything computers-wise, it looks like we've had over 1,187 students that have gone through the academy in the last 24 years. In the preschool and in the daycare, we've had over 650 kids that have been a part of that. Now, give or take, I took statistics, so give or take a margin of error, because we don't have a, an absolute list from start to finish. So for those of you that are high C personalities, get over it, okay? <laughs> and those of you that are high I's, I'm just going to tell you right now, we had almost 2,000, okay? <laughs> so how's that sound? So there we go. But you know what? I've been involved for ed with education and Christian education for over 37 years, ever since 1979. And I didn't know this was going to be my life's calling. I was planning to make, be an engineer and make lots of money. But God had other plans in mind. And uh, I didn't grow up in Christian school. I grew up in a private and a public school. But my wife and I have raised five kids in Christian schools. And it's made an incredible impact. I was not given the model in my parents. I had to seek it hard. But the only thing that drove me for many, many years, folks, was the fact that I was not going to be what my parents were. I would not let my kids taste of the pain that I felt because my dad decided not to stick around. And I guaranteed that when I got married, it was for life, and that my kids were going to taste of the things that were of God. And I realized the public system did not work. And so I have been privileged to be able to see my kids now and to watch all five of them as they love Jesus today and are serving him with their whole heart, some of them up on stage. So what can I say? I was asked a few months back as to how the school fits mission-wise into the church. Because it's really important. Christian schools sprang up all over the place after 1965, when, whenever they, you know, 62, when they took the prayer out of schools. A lot of Christian uh, churches now sprung up and started churches. When the going got tough, a lot of those schools have fallen away. And it's the same thing with some of ours. A lot of churches don't know what to do with a Christian school. They see it as either a cash cow, if it's doing incredibly well to zap the funds, or they see it as an evangelistic tool that we got to get everybody saved. And I really saw it as being, we offer a non-denominational Christian education whereby we've pushed hard for excellence. We just finished our renewal of a seven-year accreditation with Middle States and with ACSI. What you have as a school here is absolutely the best that we can offer par excellence. And we have a staff that goes with it. God has really blessed us because we've been faithful to those statutes in everything that we have done along the way. And I want you to know that. The mission of the school, I've put it on your notes, is to partner with parents to deliver educational excellence for tomorrow's leaders 
in developing a worldview that is distinctively Christian. That is transformational. That's what it's about. It's a journey. The church's mission, as you heard it already this morning, pastor said it, and that is we exist to be a community by revealing Jesus, finding purpose, and serving people. You can see how those two so dovetail. The school is about, with our six core values that are listed down below, it's all about partnering with, with families. And not only building good families, but building strong ones that are solid. Can everybody come here? No. I couldn't service every kid in Erie County if we even wanted to. I'm not looking for that. I'm not looking to be the biggest. I'm looking to be exactly what God's called us to do. Whatever his plan was when he planted it in Dick Fisher and the board back in 1992, I just want to see God do his plan and for him to get the glory no matter what we do. So I've asked our staff once again to come. I've gone a little over because I'm very loquacious and I seem to add a bunch. So forgive me. But I'm going to ask all of my staff to come. I see even some of our coaches that aren't listed on there too. Melissa, you'd come up here too. But uh, if, if all the staff from the Early Education Center and the Academy, our, our maintenance support staff, office staff, if you would come and just join me down here. And uh, pastor's going to come up as well. But you know, we live in the mission field. And there's a lot that we have to do. But it's not just our school. I've just shared a snippet with you. I don't have time to go into all the statistics. Sometimes pastor will ask me, how are things going? And I start to tell him, and I see his eyes gloss over, and he just, he just wants the bottom line. He loves us, but he wants the bottom line, and I know that. I tried my best to give you the bottom line, but to also give you a message this morning, because frankly, God has a purpose for every one of us. Now, it's not just these educators that are getting prayer this morning, because if you're involved with education anywhere, in a public school, another Christian school, would you please stand? Because we want to pray for you as well. You need God's anointing as well. And that's why we call this an Education Sunday over Labor Day, of all things, Labor Day weekend, right? You guys have worked so hard. Would you take Monday off, would you? Good. That's what I thought. That'd be cool. All right. And uh, we really value education. And there's far more I could tell you. You probably sense my heart this morning, but I want you to understand God has a word for every one of us, not just educators. And that word is Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Have an awe about who God is. And let him, in whatever area you touch of the world, let him work in you and through you to accomplish his purpose. Pastor. Would you join me in praying for these that are standing? So, Father, we pray the same. We prayed earlier, only we pray now for these who administrate and support and, and teach. So as this year begins, we humbly ask you to protect these friends. Give them courage now to live out their faith. And even in those locations in public school where they're, they're not allowed to, to publicly declare, let their very presence be a witness to your mystery and your love and your grace. Give these friends strength to make right choices. Give them wisdom to know your will. Guide their steps. Guard their hearts. Continue to reveal your presence. We ask that you would fill each of these folks with your Holy Spirit. That the giftings that you placed within them will be used to their extreme usage 
as they listen to those around them, those who have hurts and pains and, and those who come from families that are so dysfunctional. We pray that they will have insight what to say, how to care, that you'll protect them as, as they, they go to their place of serving, that they will, by the very presence of Jesus on them, be a, 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 a surrounding of, of your protection because they're protected by you. Those students are also protected by you. And we do pray protection for our schools, that there will be no violence released, that there will be around them angelic forces protecting. And in those moments that these who serve become tired or even discouraged, we pray that the courage will once again flow into them because of their time spent with you and that they will continue to follow the vision and the passion you place within them. So we give you thanks for their service and for all that they sacrifice. And we seal these prayer and we seal these friends in the name that is above every name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please say thank you to all of these who are serving in education?